This is Mission Work Optional, sponsored by True Wealth and Company. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to secure your family's investment legacy, create a work optional lifestyle, accomplish all items on your bucket list, and ensure your money outlives you. This podcast will self-destruct in 30 minutes. And now, here's this week's mission with your host, Brian Sarf of True Wealth and Company. Welcome to Mission Work Optional. I'm Brian Sarf. We're here every Tuesday at 5 a.m., and we hope you are too. You can find the Mission Work Optional podcast on iTunes, anchor.fm, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are very honored this week to sit down and be able to speak with Chris Keel. He and Keith Pratter own Armada Corporate Intelligence. They are in Lawrence, Kansas. They're one of the uh, premier economic and competitive intelligence companies that's in the United States. I love their work, been following it for years, and it's an honor to have uh, Chris here today to talk economy and to talk about some of the fun topics that we are seeing every day in the news and to go a little deeper on them because the news just hits kind of the first two minutes. We want to go a little deeper and give a little, little more background. So I want to welcome Chris Keel to our podcast. Very good. Thank you. Good morning. Morning to you. W- wonderful to finally catch up with you. Last time we tried to do this, you got caught in a snowstorm now I know. in Maine. <laughs> exactly. That's the, the perils of traveling for a living. You're sort of dependent on, on the weather, which has been odd this year. So Yeah, we've had uh, quite a weather pattern yeah, this year yeah. with the two hurricanes and then the yeah. snowstorms and all the rain and the fires. It seems like you know Mother Nature is coming back with a fury and she'd been quiet for a while and here she comes. Yep, and it has all sorts of economic implications, too, which we can talk about. We run out of other things to talk about. Yes, so we were speaking before the podcast about a, a topic that, uh, that you were bringing up in front of the groups that you speak to, mm-hmm. many of the associations that you visit with and that you talk to and that you advise on, on economics, and you called it the Finding the Dark Cloud Behind the Silver Lining. Yes, I love yes. that title. How did you come up with that title? Well, it's pretty easy when you're a dismal scientist. Um, there's, there's, there's a reason that they refer to us that way. Um, I frequently dress all in black, and as I come into a room, I play a funeral dirge. Um, at least that's the expectation. It, it is kind of the job of the economist to point out the potential threats. Um, we also want to point out the potential opportunities, but when it comes right down to it, when people are looking at economics, they kind of look at it the same way they look at the weather. I mean, you're pleased if the weather forecast is good, but you really want to know if it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. And you're tuning in to see if it's going to rain on you, if it's going to snow on you. When you're talking to an economist, it's like, well, that's, you know, I'm really enjoying the good times, but what do I have to worry about? You know, when is this going to end? Where are the threats? And as a result, we tend to focus on, on the more negative things and not that we expect them all to be as horrible as, as they can be, but that we think people are better off if they're somewhat forewarned. Absolutely. Well, you can prepare for those. You can plan for those. And you if, can. And if you're a corporation that's deploying capital or you're an association that is educating you know hundreds and thousands of members that are yep. part of that i know that i've heard you speak to the missouri cpa society a number right. of times and you know you're talking to cpas that are influencing hundreds of thousands of clients and and billions of dollars through their advice and uh and, and what they're what they're giving out to their clients exactly uh, and so they always want to know the pessimistic part of what's going to take me out next yep yep and they want to make sure that 
they're not missing opportunities as well. They want to know the good news as well as the bad. But it is, as you say, it's a matter of preparation. There's really nothing that you can't prepare for. There's really nothing that happens in the economy that you can't develop a strategy for. People make money during recessions. People make money during inflationary periods. People survive both of them. Sure. But you don't do it if you blunder into them and you're not ready. Um, And when people are managing their money and trying to figure out how they're going to allocate resources, it makes a difference. If next year is going to be a boom year or if next year is going to be a more downward spiraling year, it gives them at least some inkling of how they're going to orchestrate their own finances. Yes, very much so. It's uh, If the markets are up and our portfolios are up 20%, we don't get a lot of phone calls. Yeah. But if you're down 20%, you mm-hmm. get a lot of phone calls. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, exactly. And, and, you know, the downside hurts worse than the up. Absolutely. You know, the downside only goes down to 100. The upside goes up to thousands. So mm-hmm. it should be that way. And that's the way we're wired as a human. Right. And that's one of our my primary jobs as an advisor to my clients is to help them of what not to do. Right. Exactly. You know, that don't do that. Let's leave this alone. This isn't the time to jump off the ship and, yep. and swim away and, uh, and, and run out of our investments. That we want to stay in those and we want, to, we want to stay committed in that time frame because it just doesn't make sense to run away. Right. But it sure does feel as a human, that's how we're wired, that we want to run from pain. You know, and I always tell the story that if you leave here and gas is half price, everybody will fill their tank. And if gas doubles in price, nobody wants any of it. But if I go to the stock market and the stock market doubles, everybody wants as much as they can get. But if the stock market is down by 50%, nobody wants any of it. They want to run away. Now, why are we wired that way as humans? It's behavioral finance. There's an entire world about that. But that doesn't make sense economically, but it makes sense as a human because when you hear it, you go, yeah, I don't want to be in the market when it's down 50, but I'm happy to buy gas when it's half price. Right, right. I mean, it's economics has always wrestled with the notion that we're rational maximizers of expected utility. This yes. is something you remember from Econ 101. It, it's a, it's what I call Spock. Yeah. It's Spock versus Homer. Exactly. All the economists assume everybody's Spock to make right. the unemotional perfect decision when most people are like Homer that are unpredictable, that are just do whatever they want and whatever feels the best in the moment. Oh, absolutely. And as an economist, you're looking at the fact that people will intuitively do the wrong thing for a given economic situation. For example, we worry about inflation. The fastest way to encourage inflation is for people to buy aggressively because they fear inflation. They think prices are going to go up, so by God, I'm going to buy that big screen TV now, I'm going to buy a car now, I'm going to do all these things now because I think prices are going to go up. Well, as soon as you create that demand, well, by God, prices go up because the suppliers are like, look at this, these people are buying big screen TVs like they're going out of style. So you have created a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have given the impetus for there to be inflation, and when it comes to recession, People do the same thing. Oh, no, I feel a recession's coming. I'd better cut back. I'd better save. I'd better make sure I'm covered. I'm not going to buy anything from anybody at all. And you get a recession. I mean, it's kind of like if people were being rational, be like, well, we're facing a recession. Everybody go out this weekend and spend $1,000 on anything. Just go buy something. There will be no recession. If all 330 million of us spend 1000 bucks, wow, it would be awesome. Um, and never happens that way. Never but happens. It, but it, it, it's nice to think about. Yep, because you're sitting there thinking, well, if everybody else spends the thousand, and I don't, 
that I, you know, so it, it. Or if I lose my job is the right. is the worry, you know, because the recession is your neighbor loses their job of depressions when you lose yours. Well, it's even worse than that, you know. A recession is when your neighbor loses the job. A uh, or a downturn is when your neighbor loses their job. A recession is when you lose your job. And a depression is when the economist loses their job. Um, so. <laughs> In your talk about the dark clouds behind the silver lining, what are the, the primary points that you are, are speaking about as you travel across the U.S.? And then let's go into those, those, those main topics. Yeah, the three that come up the most often, inflation threat, which we've been looking at consistently now for a couple of years, but really hasn't manifested as it probably will in 2019. Number two is the impact of trade wars, tariff wars, just the kind of reconfiguration of international trade agreements. And then the third thing, which has been a consistent worry, but always manages to get pushed off, is debt and deficit. And at what point do either one of those or both become really damaging to the U.S. economy? There's arguments to be made that they already are very damaging, but so far that's been sort of in an abstract way as opposed to what could happen in, in the years to come. So of the three, probably the most imminent um, is inflation. Probably has the most to do with whether or not there will be a recession of some kind uh, towards the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020. Uh, We're probably, depending on how pessimistic you want to be, there's maybe half the economists are predicting some kind of a downturn towards the end of next year, beginning of 2020. But it will be a sort of manufactured downturn. It will be something that the Fed is engineering. The Fed will be raising rates sufficiently high to head off inflation, which is enough to slow down business to the point that a downturn would occur. It seems to me, though, when I look at raising rates, when when I talk to millennials today, five and six percent interest rates are really high. When I talk to my clients, interest rates that are really high were in in the 80s, somewhere between 12 and 18 is what I hear all the time. Mm -hmm. They have a different perspective on rates. But when rates are as low as they are, and they're raising by a quarter, I always look at everything by percentage. Mm-hmm. And if we're moving a quarter percent, or we're moving a half percent in a year, in percentage-wise, that's a massive move. That's comparable to a 0.75 or a 1% move years ago. And at the same time, the Fed is taking $60 billion out of the economy that they're not reinvesting into treasuries, right. that they're just returning back to, just returning back to the government. And so not only do you have rates going up, but you have this money. This is from quantitative easing of all the money we put in, the, the trillions of dollars. They're slowly pulling it out. And it'll take, I, I estimate, about three years to get half of it out of the marketplace mm-hmm. that they're going to return back. Well, that's going to drive down demand for government treasuries, right. which means yields, what they pay, have to go up to attract money. As yields go up, people that are scared of the stock market, we're going to go buy the yield because they want to get something that's guaranteed not to have yep, any uncertainty. Exactly. And so as I see what Powell has raised rates percentage-wise and and Yellen has been a monstrous percentage and at the same time we're not putting this money back in the economy so it really leverages or intensifies those those rates 
Do you think that he's really going to raise rates three or four times next year, or do you think they're feeling the effects of this? They're going to slow down a bit. They may slow down a bit. And you didn't say three or four. Yeah. I just that's yeah. what everybody else is saying. He's definitely the Fed's thinking that December will be as they've been planning it to be. There'll be another quarter point raise. Now we're starting to look at 2019 with maybe a point, but that would require four rate increases. More likely, it's going to be two or three. But it depends a little on the three different rationales the Fed has been using to raise rates, because only one of them has been inflation-tied. The other two are, one is the fairly practical matter of if you want the Fed to have the ability to deal with a recession in the future, it has to have ammunition. And they don't have much. They don't have much. They're out of bullets. If the Fed was going to try to stimulate the economy now, it says, we're going to lower rates by a quarter point. I'm like, well, who cares? You know, that, yeah. that, you know, it's not going to make a big difference. And, and the Fed learned the hard way that, and we learned the hard way, that in the last recession, the Fed is supposed to be the baby brother when it comes to simulating the economy. That's supposed to come from Congress. Congress is supposed to get involved with a recession by spending money like a drunken sailor on leave. It's yeah. just throw as much as you can <laughs> into go. the economy. Put as much in as, you know, cut taxes, increase spending, stimulate. Well, this last time we had a Congress that said, well, no, I don't want to do that. And well, the Fed can do it. Well, the Fed is, it's characterized in textbooks as pushing a string. Mm-hmm. You can't You can't guarantee that people are going to respond to that lower rate because you're looking at, are the banks going to be willing to lend? Are people going to be interested in borrowing? And if you're in the middle of a recession, a lot of companies are like, borrow for what? I don't have any customers. Why would I borrow? And the banks are coming back and saying, oh, yeah, there's plenty of people asking for loans. All the deadbeats mm-hmm. would just love for us to give them money. None of the good companies are asking for any money. So and if the bank's gonna... making a low spread on a loan, they're going to raise oh, the, they're going to raise what credit rating that they're willing to loan to and change the terms. Absolutely. You know, so, it's a, when the Fed gave out their money, it's like your uncle Vinny came over to the house with a right. bag, a big leather bag, you know, with about five million bucks, and he said, "Look, I want you to stick this in your basement. Mm-hmm. I want you to hold on to it. I'm going to come back and get it someday." What are the chances you're going to go invest that money or do anything with it other than guard it every night to make sure it's there when he comes back for it? Exactly. And that's what the Fed did. They walked into all the biggest banks in the United States and said, here's a big old bag of a billion dollars and we're going to get it. And what they do? They parked the money at the Fed and just got the quarter percent as extra revenue, but they didn't loan it. It didn't hit money supply. It didn't get loaned out. It didn't build a doggone thing in the economy. No. It did nothing. But put a bunch of money at the bank and make the banks rip wealthier. Yep. And it was one of those things where you could criticize, and people did, you know, why aren't the banks lending? And, and, and they would just sort of look at you and sigh and say, do you remember 2008 and 2009 <laughs> when you wanted to crucify us, draw and quarter us, torture us, boil us in oil because we were making foolish loans? You know, all the idiots that made the foolish mm-hmm. loans, we fired them. And we brought back the old gray beards and the old bald guys that would look at everybody who wanted to ask a loan saying, what are you going to do for collateral? If it's not your firstborn child, get out. Um, so, <laughs> okay, so we're not making stupid loans. We, we, they, just got, they just got absolutely crucified. And then you give them all the money in the world. Right. And they had more money than most countries will spend in a lifetime. 
And they didn't do a doggone thing with it, and it sat there, and it's still sitting there. Still sitting there, and and now and they're going to unwind it. And if you look at at some of the at the rationales of the bank, they'll sit there and say, "Well, you know, you realize, of course, that we make money by loaning out this money. I mean, we don't really want to sit on it. But if you read the Bank Reform Act lately, and what would happen to us if we have an error again? You know, it's like the joke among bankers these days has been: the good news is we're hiring. The bad news is we're hiring compliance officers. We haven't hired a business development person in 10 years. So I always had, I always had a, um, a wish. This is my wishful dreaming thinking yes. of the 0809 time period. So in that time frame, I figured out that all of the mortgages in the United States were worth about $17 trillion. And it seems that we spent somewhere between $5 trillion and $10 trillion on the economy in that time frame if you add everything up. Mm-hmm. And my dreamish thinking was, if you really wanted to stimulate the economy, randomly pick out of a lottery $9 trillion of mortgages you're going to wipe out. And you want to see the economy get stimulated, go pay off everybody's house. And then you're going to see a, a, everything change across the world. That was my, you know, in a dream world thinking, which never would happen. But that would stimulate the economy and grow you out of anything and immediately out of a recession and bring it back. Well, exactly. And that's the logic that you have always had with, with governments during a recession. Because maybe they're not going to pay off everybody's house, but they give tax cuts. They boost spending. You know, they come up with various programs that are aimed at people most of the time government programs seem to go to either people with good business connections subsidies for different industries or it goes to people who are in a welfare state what you periodically get during a recession is what can we give the middle class so they'll spend money and this time around we didn't get it in previous years we have and it was left to the fed so the fed back to the original point that they want ammunition. That's rationale number one. And rationale number two has been the Fed's concern about the markets because they know that part of what has made the markets so robust and, and volatile is that with rates this low, some enterprising investor can go out and borrow a big chunk of money, put it in the market, make a lot of money, pay the loan back. Mm-hmm. And the Fed is like, well, that works fine until, for some reason, the market tanks in between the point where you got the loan and need to pay it back. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to have trouble paying back your loan. The bank is even more trouble because they're the ones that gave you the loan. And the Fed's saying, we need to slow this down. We need to make it a little less lucrative. Look at Apple and Verizon. Right. They, they, They issued billions of dollars of debt in 2010, 2011, and 2012. They were paying under 2% for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the line out the door was oversubscribed by five to 10 times the people that wanted those. So here's Apple saying, look, we're gonna borrow, we're gonna borrow money and we're gonna pay under 2% for 20 years. And they got all this money to do whatever they wanted. And you know right. what they did? They just bought their shares. Yeah. And they drove their share price up as a, like a rocket ship Yeah, as it goes up. And these low rates, while they're great for healthy corporations that are smart and astute and have cash flow and that stuff, it allows for the walking dead corporations to stay alive because with higher interest rates, they're out of business. Right. And they're still hanging around. You know, I, I can't believe it took this long for Sears to be done. Right. I mean, that should have been out forever. But with their interest rates dropping every year, they could run their business. And, and that's exactly what the Fed goes through in terms of its rationale because it's looking at this going, we need 
to see the rates come up a little bit because, one, we need one of these little purgative recessions. I mean, mm -hmm. what they're hoping for is something similar to what Volcker had back in the 80s, where you had the interest rates go up, it provoked a recession, you had one of these little sharp Vs, which economists dearly love. This is the U and the V recession are great. You go down in a hurry, you come back up in a hurry. With a U, you linger a little while, then you come back up. And it ends up being a kind of an episode of creative destruction. Companies that aren't very good go out of business, and they can't, the situation doesn't help them anymore. But as they go out of business, the good companies pick up market share, and they come out of it stronger than they went into it. So the Fed is, is partially responding to inflation threats, but they're also looking at those other two things. But we're there right now. We're oh, yeah. in the end of the, of the, uh, the late stage of a bull market. This is consolidation time where all the investors want their dividend to continue, and the, and the great companies with, with big balance sheets and a ton of cash are gobbling up all the smaller competitors mm -hmm. and mergers and, and, and deals are going on left and right, and oh, that's yeah. fueling this run because the higher interest rate you pay – eats into your dividend, eats into your profitability. Yep. If you get interest rates too high of what the growth is in the marketplace, you're going to get a recession because now that's what runs the S&P are corporate profits. And if you eat into corporate profits too much and they, and they pull back, the S&P has to pull back to accommodate and, and then you have a snowball effect that yep. just continues through. And you've got some dissenting voices within the Fed, you know, people that are making the same point you're making. One of the most interesting of them is Neil Kashkari, who is the Fed head in Minneapolis. If that name sounds vaguely familiar to listeners, he's the guy that ran TARP and ran for the governor's position in California as a Republican, did pretty well, ended up from there becoming the head of the Fed in Minneapolis. He has been suggesting that we've raised rates enough, that we've already done what we need to do. And he comes from a pretty unique perspective because he oversaw TARP and then became its leading critic. And he said, look, this, this was a stupid idea. Mm -hmm. If I can't make it work, nobody can. And so we don't ever want to be in that position again. And if we're heading down that path, that's the wrong path to head down. And even if you look at some of the other people that may be coming on to the Fed board in the next two, three months, assuming they clear the Senate, the latest appointee would be a pretty interesting participant. Her name is Nellie Long. She's been a Fed economist for 30-some years. She's a registered Democrat, which the you could get into a whole conversation about Trump and, and who he has appointed to the Fed, because everything he criticized the Fed for during his campaign, none of the people that he's appointed share any of those opinions, mm -hmm. not one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and he had an opportunity, had he wanted to, to completely transform the Fed. There were six vacancies for a seven-person board, and it's it's... And that's part of that transactional leadership from the president we talked about earlier. You know, there's not really, as much as he'll talk ideology, there isn't one. There is not one thing that you can say, well, no matter what happens, he's going to stay true to this. Compare that to a lot of the attention on the Bushes of late. You know, the Bush administration was neocons. This was Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and Cheney. They had an ideology, and no amount of fact was ever going to change their mind.
the Iraq war was a good idea. <laughs> it's blown up in your face. It's a good idea. We're going to stay the course. We're yeah. losing our shirt. It's a good idea. It's like, for God's sakes, how, you know. But Trump's totally different. He totally. goes with the wind he totally as it moves and so it shifts and changes. And then he throws so many curveballs to see what will stick. Yep. If I put enough out there, I'll see what sticks. Okay, those things stuck. I'm going to run that way. Right. And then next week, I'll try it again or tomorrow or tonight. Yep. Do it again. This is uh, Mission Work Optional for those just tuning in. Uh, you're listening to Brian Sarf. I'm interviewing Chris Keel from Armada Corporate Intelligence. And we are talking through some of his points from a talk that he gives called Finding the Dark Cloud Behind the Silver Lining. We hope you're enjoying this. We don't get to talk a lot of economics here on the show. We talk about them from time to time. But it's nice to dig in and visit with you, Chris. And sure. I thank you so much for for being here today to, sure. uh, to visit with us. You know, we talked a lot about the Fed. Mm-hmm. I want to get to trade, and I want right. to talk through that, but I'd like to go first of what my clients ask the most about is, should we be worried about debt and deficits in our economy because they grew up in an era right. when they sat at the kitchen at, at the kitchen table eating their Cheerios, their parents and grandparents dealt with the Depression, the Great Depression, and they said, don't have any debt, get it all paid off, they hate debt. They don't want it. They don't have credit card balances. They don't understand why anybody does. They don't borrow money for their car. And now that we have all these debts and deficits, they're deathly worried about it. What do we have to worry about debts and deficits here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's kind of a complicated subject because on the one hand, because of who we are, we don't have the concern when it comes to debt and deficit that almost every other country in the world has. Because if you're Germany to Guatemala... You, if you run a deficit, at some point you have to make it right as far as your balance of payments are concerned, and that forces you to use your reserve currency. And the reserve currency is always the dollar. So the limiting factor for Guatemala, for Germany, for Japan, for anybody, is their dollar account. The dollar is the reserve currency. Mm -hmm. If we need more, it's like, hey, Frank, crank up the press. We need some more dollars. and They'll just fire up Philly and Denver and just burn out some more. There you go. Germany can't print euros. It's like, you know, if if you had a credit card balance that was enormous, but you could print your own money, well, who cares? (laughs) You know, I mean, you just pay it off. And and we've run that way for a long time. A long time. Um, And we have debt. We're at cheap rates right now. Yeah. So the the limiting factor is not in place for us. The real damage comes from, again, an old concept from Econ 101, opportunity cost. We are now spending as much on debt service at the federal government level as we spend on the military. So the defense budget and debt service are about the same. So every year we're spending $300 billion thereabouts on debt service. So you look at all the things that you want to do as a country, you know, fix the infrastructure, you know, whatever it is. Well, there's $300 billion that has gone off to whoever is holding those bonds. It's overseas investors. A lot of it lately has been the Fed itself, but it's still money that's not of use. China and Japan have been huge buyers. They have been. Now, their percentage is lower than it has ever been before because the Fed stepped in and bought so much. But they're still Japan, the Arab oil states, and particularly the Germans, but some of the other Europeans as well. 
So that's that's the major problem with having too much debt and deficit. The other issue, of course, is that on the deficit side, you're constantly having to borrow money to keep your budget moving, which makes your overall debt worse. And it just skews decision-making. You know, we used to talk about controlling deficit because we could cut spending or we could raise revenue. We are so far gone when it comes to deficit that we can't really do either one of those things. I mean, you can, but it would, it would be to cut our deficit through cutting spending. Ain't going to happen. You know, the government would mm -hmm. basically say, you're on your own. We're not going to do anything. Yeah, they're not, not, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah, we, they're not going to cut spending at all because if you cut spending in a government program, like if you get a budget of $5 billion and you only spend four, next year you get four. And so you're going to spend five, and you're going well, to ask and, for more. And beyond that, almost everything that's part of the government spending now is mandated. Yes. I mean, it's we are aware of the fact that Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid is expensive, but we haven't quite grasped the fact that the largest generation in U.S. history is old. The baby boomers have moved into retirement, and they're sort of like, wow, I sure like this Social Security and Medicare. Let's use her up. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, well, until that generation dies off, it's going to be prohibitively expensive. Now, if you but the majority the money, of them, well, the majority of them are, aren't sixty-five yet. No, of the boomers. No, they're just still marching into Medicare. Yep, we're still and, seeing ten thousand retirees yes. a day. In about twenty years, we will start to see a lot of savings showing up from Social Security and Medicare because that generation will finally die out, and it will be replaced by the smallest generation, which is the Gen Xers. That's mine. But then right behind the Gen Xers is the next biggest generation, which is the millennials. There are 43 million millennials. And but they're spread out over their 18 years of a generation where the boomers are really compacted very. in the middle of theirs that causes this spike in our economy. Yep. And I know a lot of business people and advisors. Demographics is something I've studied for 17 years. It is a passion of mine. I read mm -hmm. about it and I study it and learn it because it drives our investments. Oh yeah. It drives everything we do because all I have to do is follow where are the boomers going, where are they leaving behind them, and where are the millennials going, and what are they leaving behind them, and follow that through the marketplace, right. and you see some monstrous bumps that are going to come through our economy. And the one I, I hear, I see clients right now, my older clients, that are all going in for something at the doctor between 65 oh, and yeah. 71. Oh, yeah. They got Medicare, so they're going to get shoulders, they're going to get hips, they're going to get knees, they got cataracts, they got spinal surgeries and those things that are going on. And if you think the lines are long at the doctor's office, you ain't seen nothing oh, yet. Oh, no. And it's a comedy we could go on for days about the changes I, in, I want to get medicine. Into, let's get into healthcare. Yeah. Later, I want to yeah, let's, exactly. let's stay on our debt and deficit because I yeah. get it so much that everybody's just so worried about, you know, the debt and deficit. And it's like if you're a, a, a homeowner and you have a 30-year mortgage on your home and you have, you know, $70,000 in credit card debt, um, it just doesn't get wiped out tomorrow. No, I think the main difference, and it's a critical difference, and as you talk to people about it and they start to panic to say, look, the one difference is if you get out of control with your debt, somebody is going to come after you for the money that you owe. You have a punishment waiting for you. The government does not. If you had the ability as an individual to print your own money in your basement, 
would you be worried about this? No. Hell no. You would you would drive your credit cards up to the max. You'd buy 25 houses, and it's like, you know, hey, honey, I just spent a million dollars. Oh, well, I have to run her this evening again. <laughs> you know, so the government has the ability to simply... To a point, because they got to worry about right. inflation. Yeah, they got to worry about inflation. But most importantly, the only limiting factor, really, for the government is that opportunity cost. And as long as people don't come to grips with it, it just keeps going up. I mean, every year we have the whole conversation about should we leave the debt ceiling alone? And every year we raise the debt ceiling because, well, we have to. We have to have the money. Well, the debt ceiling was put in to control that kind of behavior. It was sort of like, well, you know there's a ceiling. Well, not really. It's a, it's a manufactured <laughs> ceiling, so we ignore it. Or every year we have this, that we're going to shut the government down right. every year on funding, and, and, and it's lost its luster because we realize the government doesn't really shut down. Most of it, like you said, is mandated, so I think it's like 60 or 70% keeps running. You lose some, you know, so they, so they shut down a couple of parks here and there and some non-essential services across the country. It's not going to shut us down for what's usually, you know, a week or two. Well, the biggest challenge with, with government shutdown, and gets often overlooked, is because the, you'll see the conversations about people who aren't getting, you know, their government benefits. The real issue is that about 26,000 companies do business with the government. They're told they're out of luck, and they don't get paid. And for an awful lot of companies who are government contractors, they would work like any other company. If my clients don't pay me for two months, I gotta go somewhere I have a else. crisis. I'm going to have yeah. to start firing people and all the mm-hmm. rest of that. So it's the, the risk is really with those people that do business with the government. If it happens too often, you start having the conversation that I hear quite a bit where companies are saying, well, I used to work with the government. I don't now. They're not reliable, mm-hmm. and I don't want to count on them as a client. And so that begins to change the dynamic. The big issue, again, with with having debt and deficit that is too high is that it, it just distorts, and it leaves you vulnerable. Again, the Fed worrying about having ammunition for the next recession. If we went into a recession with this kind of debt and deficit, where do we come up with the money to stimulate? All of a sudden, we really are creating huge problems. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a fallback position. If we were to get into a real war, if we were to be mm-hmm. in any situation where we have to spend a lot of money, and people laugh at that and say, oh, we're not, you know. But don't you think yeah. that the U.S., so, so for my entire life, the U.S. has been an importer of energy, mm-hmm. of oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And we built a massive portion of the Middle East with all the oil we bought in the United States. We used to buy 80% of the mm-hmm. oil from the Gulf, from the Persian right. Gulf. We buy zero now. Right. 80% is bought by China. That's why China's building their warships and everything to guard their trading lanes. It's not because they're gearing up to go to war with somebody. It's that the U.S. don't have ships over there guarding the trading lanes. Right. Because we were guarding it for our oil, which happened to benefit the world. Now we pulled our boys out of there mm-hmm. and, and, and girls. And now China is firing up their ships and building like wildfire. And so I, I, there has to be some massive benefit to the United States of being now, as of uh, last week, the number one exporter of oil to the world and will eventually be the number one exporter of natural gas, and it's coming. It has completely changed the energy equation, and we can see that by how little the world responded to the latest OPEC decision. 
you know, they said, we're going to cut production. Oh, well, who cares? Who cares? Um, you know, that would have triggered World War III 20 years ago. Do you think uh, that will drive us out of debt and deficit, this, this extra income that's going to come from oil and gas? It, or does it, it just would, drive up spending? It kind of depends on how our fearless leaders deal with the money. What worries me is that we don't ever seem to have the opinion that we should put money aside for a rainy day. The country that I wish we could emulate at times is Australia. Australia has had 25 straight years of growth. Their deficit or debt has never been more than 40% of their GDP. 60% is considered normal. What's our... What 112% of okay. GDP. I knew we were over 100. And we have a $20 trillion GDP. So it's That's 112% of $20 trillion <laughs> is a lot of money. So the Australians have kind of the mindset of a commodity-driven country. They know that good years are followed by bad years. I mean, it's a country that makes all of its money off of metal ore, coal, and agriculture. So when they have a good year, they say, wow, this is awesome. We need to save about half of it and put it in a rainy day fund because next year won't be that good. We know this is the way things work. So the Australians always have a fund. They always have money they can dip into. Periodically, you get two or three or four bad years in a row. Then they have to do some borrowing, but then that's so far been followed by two or three good years, blah, blah, blah. We have a good year, and it's like, awesome. We become like Wayne. You know, party on, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like we got a lot more money. Spend it all. Spend it all. And then we run out of money. Well, damn, that sucks. Let's borrow some. You know, it's like you could have saved. You know, you mm -hmm. could have put some of that money back. Well, and, and what we, we have to spend money on now are on non-sexy things. Right. We need to spend billions of dollars on sewers right. and water lines underneath all of our major cities because they're 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 decaying they're blowing up they're causing major issues and we need to put the money out there our bridges are crumbling highways are terrible just cross have, just cross from kansas to missouri and see the difference i have a little german engineer friend who is so fun to drive with in kansas city because there are bridges he will not go under or over so you end up <laughs> taking the most convoluted routes to go anywhere in town. And he goes, I'm not going to go over that bridge. It's going to fall down. Did you not see what happened in Italy? You know, and it's like, Jürgen, you're driving me nuts. Everything <laughs> everything has to be via Des Moines. You know I mean? It's sure. like, you know, but it's like he, and then he'll drive me under one of these bridges. And I swear to God, if those spiders die, that bridge is coming down. She's going under. You know, now. I mean, it's just so... It's pretty terrible, and that's but but that's going to you know we're talking about how do we get rid of our debt and deficit, but we have so many true things that we really need to spend money on that we're not, and we're wasting a lot of money as a government for all these projects, the pork barrel projects and everything mm -hmm. that gets bolted onto all these bills that are ridiculous that we spend right. money on. Right. And at some point in time, you know, I know that the that the dream for everybody that elected Trump was to go in there and to cut a lot of this stuff out. But it hasn't taken any of it out. If anything, we're, we're going to increase spending, just like Bush increased spending, Obama increased spending, Trump's increasing spending. Yep. It doesn't matter either you have a Democrat or a Republican in office, they're going to continue to increase spending. And I don't know how we ever shut that off. And and that's always the, the challenge, because even if you ask individuals who are expressing concerns about deficit and debt, where they want to cut is anything that doesn't affect them. And they want to keep the stuff that 
affects them. I mean, you look at something like, you know, speaking of boondoggles, the wall. If you ask the Border Patrol, do you want a wall? They said, no. Are you insane? Have you not seen our border lately? You know, most of the border we patrol with helicopters and jeeps. I mean, it's anyone who's dumb enough to try to come across Texas, they're going to die. You know, there's no place to go. All that you're going to accomplish is give us a public works project to go fiddle with every other day because the wall will be falling apart. And they're like, we have a system now. We have walls and fences and helicopters. And, you know, the issue is border security, not do we build the Great Wall of Mexico. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to That's turn... That's what got him elected. It's, it's hard to turn that into a soundbite. It's hard mm-hmm. to say... You know, I want to support, and it's had this litany of different things. It's like, I want to build a wall. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with with entitlements, Um, Social Security and Medicare. It begins to get reduced to, you're trying to take money away from poor old people. No, I'm trying to take money away from rich old people who don't really need it. And every other country in the world means tests. And basically saying, like the Germans, if, if you've made a lot of money, it's like, congratulations for giving you nothing. You're a German. You've been very successful. Why are you asking me for money? But they paid in for their lifetime. Yeah. And they paid into it, and they should get the money back or have the opportunity. Or, or, or the government looks at it and mm-hmm. said, yeah, you paid in, you know, and you've also mm-hmm. benefited from being a German. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to pay yeah. into the system, go live somewhere else. Go to France. Yeah. Oh, That's why we like the U.S. You don't, you don't want to go to France? You don't want to be a part of the riot in Paris? And shut up and pay our taxes. Um, you know? <laughs> and, and amen to why I live in the USA. Yeah, I don't live you know, in Germany. Exactly. You know, so. I don't want to be there. My, I'm, I'm 50% German. There you um, go. I'm so glad that my ancestor came over here in 1777 when he was 14 and started our family in the United States and got the hell out of Germany. That, uh, and yep, moved over here. Uh, yep. It was a brilliant decision by him, and I thank him with all my heart. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got yours is much simpler. I'm German, French, Italian, and English, so I'm I'm ready for World War Three just internally. Chris um, E. So, U. Keel, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, Chris, I appreciate you joining me this week. Loved having you here on Mission Work Optional. Uh, we've talked about the dark cloud behind the silver lining. It's been a pleasure having you uh, in the studio with us, and we'll certainly have you back again for another podcast. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Mission Work Optional from True Wealth and Company. I'm your host, Brian Sarf. We'll be back every Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. Be sure to spread the word to your friends and family, and don't keep us a secret. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on LinkedIn, and don't ever forget, invest wisely, save early, so you too can make work optional. You've been listening to Mission Work Optional with True Wealth and Company. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com or call us at 913-653-TRUE. That's 913-653-8783. All matters discussed during this program are for informational purposes only. This podcast in no way shall be construed as a solicitation to sell securities or advisory services to residents in any other state than Kansas or where otherwise permitted. Topics should be discussed with your individual advisor prior to implementation. Advisory and insurance services offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas.